Jerem Watts is going to be uh, is going to be speaking, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what the Lord's laid in your heart, bro. Um, it's going to be awesome. Jerem's a part of the street, um, and yeah, it's going to be cool. We're carrying on through the Book of Hebrews. If you've been coming lately, and it's been an exciting journey, so let's pray for you and get into it. Father, I thank you so much for uh, your word. I want to thank you, Lord, that it's alive, and uh, Lord, it speaks to us even today. And Lord, we want to pray for Jerem this morning that you would um, give him your word for us and open our ears up too, Lord, to hear your voice. So bless him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hey, it's great to be with you guys uh, this morning uh, with my makeshift um, lectern. I usually go to uh, the city location with my wife, Gabriel. I've been a part of the street uh, family for about seven years now. And so it's quite interesting actually looking out amongst uh, you guys and seeing kind of few faces that I recognize. It's great to see the church community growing and, and a lot more people coming in. So uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, I don't know where everyone is at this morning. Uh, there are so many different ways you could have walked in here today. You could have walked in having just the best week. You could be pumped on life. Work's going well. Your relationships are great. Um, you're healthy. You're happy. And you were just stoked on praising God this morning. Or you could have come in here at the opposite end of the spectrum, just having a really rough time at the moment, and maybe things aren't going well at work. Maybe relationships aren't where you want them. Maybe you're, you're suffering in some way. Um, the wonderful thing uh, about any Sunday and any sermon is that the Lord has something for you. Uh, but I'm really excited about what we're looking at in Hebrews today, because there's a very particular phrase that is put in there for your encouragement. So we'll get straight into it. If you open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 6, we'll start in verse uh, 13. It's up on the screen if you don't have your Bible uh, with you today. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged." We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, all through Hebrews so far, uh, the author has been uh, offering encouragement and offering warnings, uh, telling people, you know, hold on to your faith, keep going, stand firm to the end, don't fall away, don't give up, hold on. And where we're at today, he wants us to be greatly encouraged. But how do you encourage someone? If you want someone to, to take a step of faith or to, or to persevere through hard times, you, you offer them something, and that's usually by going back to something in the past. You know, maybe for the French football team is looking forward to the final tomorrow morning. They will be hoping that they get to a win, but someone encouraging them might say, hey, remember back in 1998 when you won. Remember, you know, the boys that were before you, they've done it before. They'll go back to the past 
to show that there is hope uh, to greatly encourage them. I grew up in Auckland, and I'll always remember the first time I went up the Sky Tower and, and I stood on the, the glass floor. Anyone here done that? I remember going there as a wee lad and, uh, and looking around and seeing other people just flipping out, just freaking out. They, you know, wobbly legs, holding on to their loved ones, holding on to the edge, just terrified that they're going to fall through. And I, I would have been about seven or eight, I think. And I remember just, just stepping on to the glass and, and looking down, you know, a little bit scared, but, but I stepped on with confidence. And the difference between the way that, that I was able to do that and that I was able to, as a child, stand on that glass is because my dad had said to me, uh, explained to me the engineering behind the glass. He had said, Jerem, you know, it may look scary, but when you stand on that glass, just know that there is so much reinforcing in there. The glass is so thick that it is impossible for you to fall. You can step onto that glass with confidence. And so he'd given me that hope. He'd set that foundation, and I was able to do it. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing for us today and what he's doing for the people at the time who were reading it. He was saying, I want you guys to be able to step forward into the future in hope. And so I'm going to explain to you the reinforcing of the glass. I'm going to explain to you the character of God, the promises of God, his unchanging nature, so that you can step out in hope. And he does this by referring back to uh, their most revered ancestor, Abraham, in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. In order to understand that, we actually need to pop back into Genesis and just filter what we're reading in Hebrews back through uh, this interaction with Abraham. So if you you can look on the screen or you can jump in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter, where are we going? Chapter 15, 4. The context of this is Abraham is sort of uh, moaning to God a little bit. He's saying, God, I, I don't have an heir. I don't have any children. You know, how am I going to have descendants? How is my legacy going to continue with no kids? The only person in my household is, is uh, some random guy called Eliezer in Damascus. He's like, God, don't let it be him. Don't let this guy be my descendant. Please give me someone. And so God promises Abraham. He says uh, in verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham. Old mate, Eliezer in Damascus is not going to be your heir. You are going to have a son. I promise you that he will be your heir. Abraham was 76 years old when God made that promise to him. Let's jump forward uh, to Genesis 21, a few years later. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, Abraham's wife, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son for Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The promise came when Abraham was 75, 76 years old. 25 years later, the promise was fulfilled. And we see in verse, in verse 13 of Hebrews uh, chapter 6, where he says, Abraham waited patiently and the promise was fulfilled. Patiently for 25 years. 
years. When he was 76, God said, you will have a son. I wonder what that would have been like for Abraham waking up every day for 25 years. Maybe the promise will be fulfilled today. Maybe the promise will be fulfilled today. But he waited, and 25 years later, his son was born. Jumping one uh, chapter over, Genesis chapter uh, 22. Now, Isaac has been born, um, and uh, he's been circumcised on the eighth day. And uh, in this context here, uh, Abraham has obeyed the Lord, and, and, he's, and God is, is testing Abraham. Not because God wants to know something, but God wants Abraham to know something. And he says, I want you to take your son. I want you to take Isaac. I want you to go up this mountain. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me your only son, and this is the son of the promise, and God has asked Abraham to go up there and to offer him as a sacrifice, and so Abraham does, he goes up the mountain, he binds his son, and he's about to drive the dagger in when God stops him and says, hey, Abraham, stop, Um, now I see your heart is totally for me, and this is when the promise, the amazing promise comes in, chapter 22, 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The author refers back to this amazing interaction between Abraham and God thousands of years ago, this promise, this oath that God has taken. And he says to Abraham, I swear by myself, I swear by my name, that because you have done this, because you haven't withheld your only son, I'm going to bless you. And through your descendants, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. But, but why refer back to something so long ago? And why, why, this, why this oath? Why does God take this oath. If we go back to Hebrews verse 16, we'll see a little bit more uh, about what's going on here. If I find it in my Bible. People swear by someone greater than themselves, verse 16, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God wanted to make his purpose very clear. So we're back here with Abraham, and God is making a promise to Abraham, I will surely bless you, because he wanted to make his purpose very clear. And he confirmed it with an oath. Why did he confirm it with an oath? We have a bit of a cultural chasm here, because for us today, we, we make oaths very infrequently. Uh, it's not common for us to, for people to say, you know, I, I swear I will... I will I will bring your car back to you tomorrow. I swear I will do this. We don't really take oaths anymore. But back in first century, back in, uh, in the Hebrew times, oaths were very common. And it was a way of, of assuring someone that you will do what you said. And usually it was to make up for a deficiency in character. So if someone said, you know, I swear on my children's life, I will bring you two camels tomorrow. If you did not bring the two camels, your children would die. I swear on my kid's life I will do this thing. So if someone said, on oath, I swear on my kid's lives I will do this, they're not messing around. They are going to see that through. 
people say, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. You're basically saying, if I don't come through on this promise, may my mother's grave be desecrated. And so when God says, I swear by myself, he's saying, if I don't come through, I'm not God. He makes an oath. An oath in the, in the, in the Greek language basically means a fence that constrains. God constrains himself. He lowers himself to do something, to convey a message in a way that we would understand, in a way that the Hebrews would understand. God wanted to make his, his purpose very clear. He says, how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make my purpose clear to these people? I will do something that they will understand. I'll make an oath. This is the way that the Hebrews were going about things. So God says, I'll meet them where they're at. I'll make an oath like they do. He lowers himself. He constrains himself. He says, I swear by my own name that I will do this for you. I swear by me because there was nothing greater. I can't believe that the author said that because God, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Nothing greater. What could he have sworn by? You know, I swear by Mount Everest. Oh, no, I made that. No, I swear by the Pacific. No, I made that too. You know, nothing greater. I swear by me. I swear by Yahweh. I swear by the Alpha and the Omega. I swear by the great I am. Because I am who I am, I will do this. You will be surely blessed. Amazing that God constrains himself like that. And he does it because he wants to make the unchangeable nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. We see that in verse, uh, in verse 17. The unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear to the heirs of what was promised. Who are, who are the heirs? The heirs of what was promised. We see that the promise was made to Abraham for the sake of Abraham and then for his line, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Joseph, all the way down to Jesus. But it's not just for the Jews. He's not just making the promise for the Jews. He's making the promise for us too. Look at Romans 4, uh, verse 13 to 16. It's up on the screen also. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. You extrapolate that out, you see what that means. Thousands of years ago, when God made the promise to Abraham, he was thinking of the Hebrews, he was thinking of you, and he was thinking of me. The heirs of what was promised. The heirs of the promise, the true children of Abraham, aren't just circumcised Jews, believing Jews. It's us. It's Gentile believers. He is the father of many nations. Drink that in for a second. Thousands of years ago, Three, four, five thousand years ago, when God made a promise to Abraham, he wanted to make the, his purpose, his unchanging character, so clear that he confirmed it with an oath. He put his name on the line because he wanted you, he wanted me here in Miramar today to know he is faithful. 
thousands of years ago, he was thinking of you. Thousands of years ago, he wanted you, as you sit here, to go, I believe in him. I trust his character. I trust his promises. He is faithful. He locked himself in with an oath to Abraham. He constrained himself. Almighty God constrained himself so that we might be greatly encouraged. It's phenomenal. Yeah, another word for uh, the encouragement there in, in verse um, in verse 18 is strong consolation. Have a strong consolation. Uh, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which, it is, in which it is impossible for God to lie, those two unchangeable things are his promise and his oath. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Strong consolation, confidence, great encouragement. The strong consolation weathers a storm. The strong consolation, this great encouragement, isn't, isn't shaken by circumstances, isn't shaken by wealth or lack thereof. It isn't shaken by a job or lack thereof. It isn't shaken by anything. A strong consolation goes, I see the promises of God. I see what he said. I see that he's faithful. I will not be shaken. And there are many and numerous wonderful promises that God has made uh, throughout the scriptures. I really encourage you to spend some time, but here's just a couple of them for you this morning. What pro- I hope some of these are promises that you need to be reminded of. Psalm 138, eight, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's a promise. God will fulfill his purpose for you. He has a purpose for you and he will see it through. James 4, eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. If you draw near, he will draw near. It's, he'll meet you where you're at. Matthew 28. Man, this one is one that's just got me through so much uh, in the past years, throughout my whole life. Matthew 28, where just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I, I recite that one to myself almost daily when I'm battling, when I have anxiety, when something isn't going the way I thought. I thought, you know, this sucks. But Matthew 28, Jesus is with me. He promised. He is with me always to the end of the age. Romans 8, all things work for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Your circumstances might not be ideal. Whatever you're going through might be tough and confusing, but God works all things for the good. That's a promise. And lastly, in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's a promise. He won't abandon you. He won't leave you. What God started, he will see through to the end. These promises of God are so, so precious. And they're tied up in his character, in his unchanging nature, in his purpose. He won't change. He doesn't change. He's not capricious. In Numbers 23, 19, you know, the fact that God took an oath was unbelievable because Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should change his mind nor a son of man that he should that he should lie does he promise and not fulfill does he speak and then not not act he didn't have to take the oath but he did because he wanted you and he wanted me to trust his promises to trust that he is faithful so that we can be greatly encouraged 
we go back to the Sky Tower again, and the writer has just, uh, in some ways, explained the strength, uh, the reinforcing of the glass. He's gone and said, you know, the, these are the, the character, the promises of God. This is the engineering behind the glass. Now you can step out. Now you can step out onto the glass. And that is the hope that Christians have. You know, followers of Christ are defined, in, in one way, we're defined as people of hope who stand on the promises and the character of God. You know, we're described in a really interesting way. In verse 18, we're described as we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. Man, this messed me up when I was uh, first reading this, this, this passage. I read it over and over again, going through commentaries. I'm like, what the heck are we talking about? We who have fled to take hold of the hope. What are we running from? What are we fleeing from? If you look at the context of where we are in Hebrews and, and what Simon was talking about last week and uh, the comparison of the, the land, that two different sets of land that both drink in the rain, one bears fruit, one doesn't. And the weeks before that, the, the warnings against falling away, you know, what we're fleeing from, what Christians are fleeing from is apathy. And we're fleeing from the things that would turn us away from the living God, things that would take our joy and take our focus. We flee from apathy. We flee from complacency. We flee from anything that would hinder our relationship with Jesus. And we grasp this hope. We take hold of it. We seize it. We hold on to it for dear life. And that's why the metaphor of an anchor is, is just so fitting. Uh, Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to uh, talk on that last verse today. We're going to go into uh, old Malky in a couple of weeks and, um, and describe it in, in detail. But the anchor in the, in first, in, in the Middle East, uh, in, in the first century um, Middle East, an anchor was such a common metaphor for strength, for reliability, for faith. And, and the anchor is so fitting here when we're talking about hope, because when an anchor is being used, you can't see it. When an anchor is on the boat, it's not doing its job. You need an anchor when you're in trouble or when you want to stand firm. You drop an anchor off the side of a boat, it plunges to the depth, and you hope that it's doing its job because you can't see it. That's why in, uh, in Romans uh, 8.25, Paul writes, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Sound a little bit like Abraham? We wait for it patiently, this hope we cannot see. Hope is such a beautiful, beautiful word, but I feel like our, uh, our English language doesn't really have uh, a firm enough grasp on it. It's so flimsy. Think of the way that we talk about hope in our context. You know, I, you know, I hoped England would make it to the World Cup final. Uh, you know, I hope the weather is good next weekend. You know, I hope the preacher doesn't go on too long. You know, it's, you know, there's no basis for, uh, for seeing that through. I'm only in my introduction, but, um, 
You know, we have, we, we talk about hope as in this, this desire, this feeling for something to happen, but we have zero knowledge, zero expectation that it will come to pass. Just one definition of hope um, in uh, the dictionary, a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. It's based on zero promise, zero assurance. It's just a feeling, a hope, a desire. I really want this thing to happen, but I have no idea if it will or not. That is not the hope that we have. Listen to this, the the definition of the Greek word for hope that the writer here is using. Hope in the Christian context is a favorable and confident expectation, a forward look with assurance. Does that sound flimsy at all? That is not based on feeling. That is not based on desire. A forward look with assurance. Tanya Walker from uh, Ravi Zacharias' international ministry says, uh, Christian hope, biblical hope, is looking forward, looking with an assured faith into an unseen future that is absolutely guaranteed. With an assured faith into an unseen future that is absolutely guaranteed. Unseen. That's why the anchor metaphor matters. Because when the anchor is being used, you cannot see it. You don't hope for what you already have. You hope for something that is unseen. You don't have it yet. But for a Christian, it is, pro- it is promised. It is assured. The res- we know the result, even though we cannot see it yet. And what is this hope? Well, Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Praise be to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. The Christian hope is one of the most beautiful, soul-filling, strengthening, wonderful things that we have. The Christian hope is not that that when we die, we're evacuated and we go to heaven. The Christian hope is that God is making everything new. The Christian hope is that when we die at the end of time, when, 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 uh, when God says enough, things are finished, he's going he's gonna to make a new heavens and a new earth. We will be resurrected. We'll have resurrected bodies. The way, you know, Mary didn't recognize Jesus when he came out of the tomb because he was, he was in his glorified, wonderful new body. We will have new bodies. The, the Christian hope is that what happens now isn't the end. That what goes on here, even though we don't understand, even though it sucks, even though it's painful, even though it's hard, that at the end of time, God is going to make everything new. This, this body that falls to pieces and that, that hurts, and I almost broke my finger at CrossFit being really dumb, this body that just doesn't hold itself together that well is going to be glorified, is going to be made new is going to be strong, is going to be powerful, is going to be a spiritual body. The hope that we have should get us through. And it helps make sense of everything that we look at at the moment. You know, the, one of the great hopes that, that gets me through is, is the hope that one day there will be justice. One day there will be justice. You know, so many times I hear people say, how can, 
How can you believe in God when there is so much evil and suffering in the world today? How can you believe in God when there's so much pain, when people hurt so badly, when there's people get away with evil deeds? I said, well, you know, that's one of the reasons why I believe in God, because there has to be justice at the end. There has to be justice. The hope that we have is that the the war criminals from who who, who got away with it um, in Rwanda or in the Nazi camp, the Nazis who weren't who weren't brought to justice, the the people who traffic women and children, and aren't going to see justice. Wall Street bankers, politicians, systems, loan sharks, people that prey on the weak and the vulnerable, that at the end of time, people who get away with it, people who spend their whole lives hurting other people, people who spend their whole lives beating down on the weak and needy, that there will be justice. But it's not just the evil out there. It's not just, it's not up just other people. It, it's for me too. And I'm so thankful that, that, you know, Christ redeemed me for the evil thoughts I've had, the things I've done, the things I've looked at and said. There needs to be justice for what I've done and for what you've done. And thanks be to God that Jesus has taken that from me. Justice has already been served for my sins. There's so much that goes on that just, uh, past couple of weeks just reading the news and, and, you know, even things that go on in the work, the work that I do working in anti-trafficking, it's just, sometimes I just shake my head and I just look up and I say, God, I have no idea what's going on. But I trust that, that you are a God of justice and that it will be served. That is the hope that I have. It's a forward look with assurance that one day justice will be served. You know, and I, and I hope that that, uh, that gets you through uh, life and wherever you're sitting today, you know, life is hard and it's not always rosy and we're not promised health, wealth and prosperity. And if you're listening to any preachers who do that, stop listening to them. Um, and I remember a few years ago when I was going through a real, uh, maybe five years ago, I, I probably call it a crisis of faith. And I remember being down at Island Bay Beach and I was thankfully it was in the middle of a storm because I was screaming my head off at God, just saying, God, where are you? I felt so distant from him, felt so alone, felt so lonely, uh, felt like he had pulled back and that I'd pulled back and that there was a distance between us. And, and I didn't understand what he was doing. I didn't understand why I couldn't I couldn't feel his, his presence anymore. I, how, why I couldn't connect with him. I didn't understand the reason for the suffering in my soul. But from where I stand now, looking back on that five years ago, now five years later, I see there was a purpose in the suffering. Because for everything that I've gone through in the past few years, and as I, as I look at, at, at complex things in, in the scriptures now, and, and, I, and I'm looking around at other people's suffering, I can look back on God holding me and sustaining me through my period of doubt and anxiety and stress and almost a loss of faith. And I see that he carried me. And I see his faithfulness. And I see that he wasn't going to let me go. I've seen, I, I knew the promise. I knew that he was with me. I knew that he'd sustain me. And I saw him carry me through. He was faithful to complete it. You know, that's what makes Christianity so unique 
so powerful. We have this hope that doesn't exist in any other worldview. No other worldview has such a handle on hope like Christianity. Consider uh, Islam. The hope that they have, generally, the hope they have is that when they die, Allah will let them in and that their good deeds will be outweighed by their bad deeds. There is no assurance in Islam, zero assurance in Islam that what they do on earth will mean that they get into heaven. They have no basis for hope. Consider an atheistic worldview. You know, in a worldview where we're just atoms and matter and that you create your own meaning, there could be no possibility for hope. You create your own meaning in in an atheistic worldview. Where does hope fit into that? Consider Buddhism, Eastern religions. The whole idea is to do away with desire, to do away with hope, don't want anything, and so that when you die, you can enter into nirvana, which is a state of nothingness. The cycle of reincarnation in an Eastern theology, in an Eastern worldview, is that the problem is that you want, and the problem is that you desire. And so do away with hope and do away with desire. Christianity is the only worldview that embraces hope, a full assurance, a look forward to the future that gives meaning, that gives meaning to our lives. Christian hope is rooted in heaven, rooted in Jesus. It's described at the end of Hebrews 6, uh, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That's, that's a picture of entering into the presence of God where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. That word forerunner is used as, as the advanced party of an army. Jesus has gone forward. He's scouting out what's ahead, but that advanced party means that people will follow. Our forerunner, he's gone before us. We will follow. That is the promise. We'll be where he is. We hold fast to hope because we are held by him. In Philippians 3.12, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. It's not just us holding on to hope and the fact that maybe I'll let go, that I'll be abandoned. Now, Simon already explained that last week. You have your salvation, you can't lose it because Jesus is holding on. To us. I invite the musicians up just as we close. I want you to consider where is your hope this morning as you look forward, as you uh, look at the world around us, and, and maybe sometimes you're confused or wondering about suffering and pain. I wonder if this morning you need to look forward to the hope that's set before us. I just want to read from Revelation 21 1 to 4. Uh, speaks of at the end of all things. It's a really beautiful passage. And John uh, is writing, he sees this in a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A beautiful picture. Our resurrected King, our Savior Jesus, is now there in the presence of God, and we are promised to be with him one day. He is our forerunner. We will go to where he is. All things will be made new. All things will be made new. And it is rooted, promised, 
by God. There's a summary verse, Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. Our hope rooted in the promise and character of God. Let's worship.